This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 19, Episode 2. This is Writing Excuses. Q&A on a boat. 15 minutes long. Because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Don Juan. I'm Aaron. I'm Dan. And I'm Howard. And this is the Writing Excuses Workshop and Retreat. We are coming to you from uh, the past, 2023, with a room full of writers. (laughs) And they have some questions for us, and you all get to join in learning about their questions. Alrighty, so I'm Chris, and I was wondering what, how do you keep motivation going for long form projects? And don't say money. <laughs> money. I'm, I'm glad you don't want us to say money because this is not an industry in which you make money. <laughs> and it's shocking how ineffective that is at motivating you in the middle of the project. I think that can be very exciting in the beginning. But you get paid on signature, and then you get paid on delivery. So when you're in the middle, you're at the farthest distance between the times that you get paid at that point. So it, it doesn't feel very exciting. It doesn't keep you in the moment. So I think you're right to, to think that that's not going to be the answer. One of the things that I like to think about is that this isn't the first long-form thing you've ever done in your life, probably. And so a lot of it is figuring out what motivates you generally. Like if you're running a race or anytime you were in school and you had to do a project, what kept you going? And then figure out what's the version of that that works for writing because what motivates you is going to be very different than what motivates me or any of us. A couple of brain hacks. The first is something about this project got you motivated to start it and finding a way to go back and look at that and remind yourself of why you got engaged in this. What is it about this project that brings you joy? Uh, And the second is sometimes with the daily grind, you need to place a carrot out in front of you, some sort of reward for writing a thousand words or for finishing this broken scene or whatever it may be that's, that's slowing you down. So I have ADHD and I have this problem all the time. Um, What I found is that giving myself small-term immediate rewards uh, can often help because then I'm thinking about, oh, if I just write 100 words, like there's a program called Written Kitten, and you write 100 words and it gives you a picture of a kitten. I will write ridiculous quantities of words for kitten pictures. So what you're looking for, um, the the kind of four things that will drive an ADHD brain, and I think this works for other people, is uh, novel, interesting, challenging, and urgent. So if you can figure out what's new about what you're trying today, uh, what is interesting about it? Um, If you can set yourself a challenge, like, can I write 100 more words than I did yesterday? Um, Can uh, urgency, if you set a timer, it's like, how how many words can I write during this time? Sometimes it's, I'm going to go to a different coffee shop. That's the thing that'll do it. But it's it's tricking your brain into finding uh, finding the new joy every day. And I will say, for me, that... For me, I actually will work better sometimes for other people than I will for myself. So there's this thing that I participated in a few times called The Grind, where they put you in a group with people you don't know, and every day for the entire month, you're expected to send them a piece of writing. 
they don't really read it, you don't really read theirs, but the feeling that these people are waiting at their email for me to have written something will help me get words on a page. And that's because I know myself and I know that other people, like feeling that I'm gonna let somebody down is sometimes more motivating, which is, you know, we'll talk about that in therapy, but (laughs) it's more motivating than thinking that I'm gonna let myself down. This is one of the reasons when I talk about trying to figure out what your next project is or what you wanna be writing, that I say separate out market concerns from what you're interested in. Because if you're writing something purely cynically for the market, then when you run out of motivation, it's really hard to get yourself back into it. Because if you don't have that kernel of love for the story that you're doing, if you don't have that native enthusiasm, then that well is much shallower, I think. Um, So being able to pull from a deeper sense of investment in the project, I think is really important. All right, let's go on to our next question. All right. Hi, uh, my name is Brooke Whitman Kuhn, and I'm wondering, uh, this is a uh, question about querying. Uh, when searching for comp titles, are there any tricks to finding books that would be similar to yours? Uh, this is one of my favorite topics. The question is about comp titles, and are there any tricks to sort of finding ideal ones? Unfortunately, there's no real tricks to it. Uh, it, it this is always a challenge. It's one of the hardest parts of my job, and it's one of the hardest parts about figuring out Uh, how to query, right? So my general pieces of advice that I give about comp titles is to think of it like a Venn diagram because what you're trying to do is target the audience for your book and comp titles are how you kind of zero in on that. So you're looking for two things that overlap and define a clear area and that is going to be the audience for your book and that's what you're trying to communicate to the agent that you're writing that letter to. So really step back, look at it from a very high level. You're, people always mis- make the mistake of digging too deep into, oh, this plot detail kind of works or this aspect of it kind of works, but not that aspect. You're going for top level vibes, right? You're going for the overall feeling of what the project is. Or when you say it, what's the first thought somebody has about that book, about that movie, whatever it is. So keep it high level. Look for things that are in your category. Look for things that have the energy you're trying to bring and look for the kind of people who like what you're doing, who are you writing for, and then work backwards from that to what do they like that's similar to your book. It's also useful to find someone who knows how to do comp titles and is is willing to give you a little help. Um, I'm working on a uh, a serial uh, prose thing in the Schlock Mercenary universe, and my first comp title was, yeah, it's like uh, it's like Doc Savage meets Douglas Adams. And my friend Brandon said, mm, no, it's like Murder, She Wrote meets Garden, Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> I realized, oh, yeah, yours is way better than mine was. I love how Dongwen's advice was, here's how to do this. And Howard's advice was, cheat. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, use any tool you got. If you, if you can cheat, <laughs> cheat, please. Let's say purely theoretically, uh, you published a book as a 17-year-old and it's self-published a book as a 17-year-old and it's real bad. Uh, How doomed are you in Trad Pub in the future? Uh, If you published a book previously that you feel like might be holding you back, if it's self-pub, you are 0% doomed. Uh, On the Trad side, basically, if you've self-pubbed a thing, we care if it has sold a ton of copies. Otherwise, it doesn't really impact what anybody's looking at. Um, When you're going to publish your first book with a traditional publisher, 
we'll just say it's your debut or your trad or you know your traditional debut or big five debut or whatever it is, right? It, it doesn't impact it much. Nobody's going to be digging into that history and being like, wow, this person published a book as a teenager. We are blacklisting them from the industry. That just doesn't happen, right? Um, so we're more interested in success when it's coming from an indie market versus um, stuff that uh, didn't perform as much as you would have liked it to. Hey, uh, my name is Patrick. Um, I handed a manuscript off to a friend and she read it and she said, I really liked this part. Uh, I'm excited to see where it's going. And I don't remember writing that part. How do you keep track in a long project of where you were going and the, the hooks you were setting up? Uh, you reread it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have people come up to me all the time and tell me how much they like something. And I'm like, hmm, good. <laughs> the, the, the lesson that I learned from Mary Robinette was to say, I'm so glad you liked that. I'm so glad you noticed that. I reread my stuff regularly and, well, not regularly, but often and find that I did not remember writing a thing, but it's right there and it's making me laugh. And Here, let, let me ask you a question. Is this someone who read, because they're excited to see where it's going. So clearly this was not a full manuscript. Was this like a chapter by chapter or a scene by scene situation? It's not finished, but I gave them like 18 chapters. Okay, 18 chapters. What I have found with people, uh, uh, when, when you're in that kind of beta reading stage, like I want you to read this, I want to get feedback, you are going to get very different feedback from someone who reads the whole thing versus someone who's reading chunks of it. The people who read chunks of it will give you much more granular feedback, which can often be very helpful, but they tend to hyper-focus on details that don't matter. Whereas someone who reads the entire project might not even notice those little details because they're looking uh, with a much wider lens. And so it might just be that this isn't a big deal um, because, of course, with 18 chapters, that's a lot. So, yeah. I would also say to leave yourself notes. I'm a big fan of doing things that your future self will appreciate in all ways, uh, but especially with writing. So as you're writing, if there's something that you are really excited about, as opposed to assuming that you will remember that later, because you very well may not, it's really nice to sometimes go like, oh, this is great. Make sure to come back to this. Leave yourself. Sometimes I literally keep note paper on the side of my desk or a PowerPoint because I'm a weirdo. Um, and I will put in and like, this is something that I really want to come back to. And I'll do the same thing if I'm rereading a section of a manuscript. I'll be like, what's jumping out to me right now? And then leave myself a note about it so that when three weeks from now I have forgotten that section, I can look at those notes and use them as signposts to what was really motivating me and what I want to make sure ties back to my original uh, thoughts. I also look at it as an opportunity um, that sometimes they, they mention something you don't remember writing. Um, and you're, this is an opportunity to, to say, oh, I, I accidentally did something cool. Um, sometimes you did it on purpose in the moment, but you've forgotten it. So how can I, how can I use that going forward? Um, if you've read my novel, Ghost Talkers, and if you haven't, please do. Um, 
Uh, Mrs. Richardson is nowhere in my outline at all, but I started, I, uh, she plays a really pivotal moment because I had situations like that where someone said, oh, I really like this. The other thing that you can do if you did not leave yourself notes is you can reverse engineer your outline. And so you can go back and do that reread as part of your prep for continuing forward. I'm excited to take some more questions, but we need to wait until after our break. Hi, um, my name is Emma and I'm the producer. I'm going to do the thing of the week this week um, because it is another podcast that is co-hosted by Marshall, our recording engineer. It's called Just Keep Writing um, and it's an amazing podcast. It's a podcast for writers, by writers, um, and the whole purpose is to build community and to raise marginalized voices. And Marshall and his co-hosts are just um, incredible. And they have some wonderful guests on the show. Some of them are guests we've interviewed. Um, but as fellow writers and podcast listeners, I highly recommend checking out Just Keep Writing. You can listen to it wherever you get your podcasts or go to justkeepwriting.org. I am going to ask a question that we have from the Discord, um, which is we have a writer who... Um, relies heavily on the Enneagram when they are plotting their character arcs. Uh, and the Enneagram, Dan's looking at me with confusion. Yeah, I've never it's, heard of this. It's a, a personality, it's not quite a test, but kind of similar to... Um, Myers-Briggs. Myers-Briggs, thank okay. you. Um, and so this writer is wondering if you all use certain personality type systems when you are building your characters. My feeling on this is that any tool that gives you traction is a good tool. Because I come out of theater um, where basically our job was to read the text and then figure out who the character was. Uh, I, I don't have a lot of tools for coming up with characters uh, because it's the part of, the, of writing that comes most naturally to me. When I, do, uh, when I do have a problem with a character, I tend to reach for... Um, something that's like uh, where I, I look at their ability, role, relationship, and status and try to figure out what's driving them. I'll try to think about super objective or objective. But most of the time, I only do that if I am stuck. And, and then I will go back and I will, um, I'll, I'll examine my own text to look for those things, to look for those markers, to help me understand where I should move next. But I, I don't do that pre-work because it comes naturally to me. But it doesn't come naturally to everyone. When I'm making an NPC for an RPG, I definitely do sun, moon, and rising signs just as like a little touchstone to return to in improv moments of like, how is this character going to react in this situation? So something, I mean, there's a million different rubrics you can use for this. Any of them could be useful. It's just a way to crystallize in your own mind what motivates a character, how do they react in a situation, and what is their emotional core? I also think I love these types of personality tests and and sun, moon, and rising, and all of that. And one of the things I like about them is that they make explicit some of the ways in which we relate to and see the world. So sometimes you won't think, like, how do I feel in social settings is not a question people were thinking about as much until everyone started talking about extroverts and introverts, and it made people think differently about the world. And so sometimes, even if I don't use a specific character type, I'll think, what am I learning about the world from the way that this particular personality test breaks things down? 
earlier today, I was actually speaking with somebody about, uh, from Myers-Briggs, there's intuitive versus sensing, which is sort of, do you like things you can touch and taste and hold? Or do you like things like figuring out, like making leaps of logic, I believe is true. And I was thinking about what way a specific text was like going through things. So you could have a detective, for example, and a detective story that is really based on the physical and the sensory, or you can have something that's based on huge leaps of logic and gut feelings. And so even thinking about the way that portions of text can have personalities and can have personality traits is a fun way to use that system in maybe an unexpected way. Yeah, I uh, have, I've tried to use personality tests before and find that they don't work great for me. Um, but what I do do a lot is kind of fan cast my characters mm. with people I know or actors or whoever. And what that does is it gives me a clear sense of kind of specific mannerisms and ways of speaking um, you know, I, if I'm writing a character and in my head I'm thinking of Aquafina, for example, that's going to come across in the page. Uh, and that doesn't mean that it has to, like, were it to be adapted, it would have to be cast the way that I imagine it, just because it gives me, um, like I said, some specificity that really helps me characterize them. My name is Rebecca, and this question is probably more for Mary Robinette. I'm looking, I'm indie pubbed and looking at recording my own audiobook. I've got a little bit of a theater background. I was just wondering if there were, was anything that kind of caught you by surprise as you started doing audiobook narrations or things I should be looking out for? So one of the things that catches a lot of people when they're going from stage in particular into audiobooks is that you don't project and some people have a really hard time backing off. So you're kind of doing everything as an aside, and it's very intimate, like you're telling a story to someone who is sitting right next to you. And that's, uh, that, was, that was a surprise for me. The other thing that was a surprise was how many mistakes I was allowed to make. What they're looking for isn't, I mean, obviously a clean read is, is ideal, but what they're really looking for is the ability to, um, to, to do a punch record uh, and not to get flustered. Like every time you get flustered and apologize, you're slowing things down. So when you make a mistake, the engineer backs you up, he starts recording again, and then, and then he'll punch in. And, uh, and you're supposed to just keep talking as if you had never stopped. And so learning to do that and matching your own tone of voice, um, that, that was one of the, the skill sets that I, you know, is very specific to audiobook. Uh, everything else translates pretty well, but, but those two, like, don't project, real intimate, it's all in a side. And, um, and then learning how to, to just match your own tone is, uh, is, are the two two things that I would say to cultivate. There are a bazillion uh, technical aspects of this. And one of the things that you may find is that the voiceover community, there are a lot of people who do voiceovers and who will do tutorials on how to set up your fan studio so that 
you can, you know, create a voice voiceover reel, um, which is a, a cheap way for you to figure out how to get acoustic isolation and a consistent ambience uh, for the room that you're recording in. Uh, these are things that are going to be important because you don't want your levels jumping around. You don't want the, the background room sound changing. Um, but it's all very technical stuff. And it's, uh, you end up training yourself to be an audio engineer if you're doing it yourself. That's all we have time for. Um, I am going to do the homework tonight or today, which is um, to go listen to the most recent episode of Just Keep Writing, the podcast that Marshall, our recording engineer, co-hosts. This is Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go listen to Marshall's podcast. Hey, have you sold a short story or finished your first novel? Congratulations. Also, let us know. We'd love to hear from you about how you've applied the stuff we've been talking about to craft your own success stories. Use the hashtag WXSuccess on social media or drop us a line at success at writingexcuses.com. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine, archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storytellers' stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like, do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.